This is week seven, our final week of our co-missioned series where we have been diving into what it looks like to become disciples of Christ, what it means to live out that great commission in our daily lives, our collective calling together, what that means coming together, driving apart, reaching the community that we've been called to reach in our lives, in the places where we travel every day. We're not missionaries to Africa. We are missionaries to the people in our lives, the people around us, in our works, in our schools, in our places that we travel every day, the people that we see. These are our mission field. We've been called together to reach that. And so Jesus teaches through Matthew 10 what it looks like to be his disciple, what it means to go to the world. And then he leaves us with just a few more tidbits in Matthew 11, and we're going to finish there today. And so we're going to read um, starting at verse 16, and then we'll skip down to verse 25. It says this, this is Jesus talking, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is good news for us. To have an easy yoke, to have a light burden, to have rest in what we do day after day. The question before us today, though, is why wouldn't we want rest? Why wouldn't we want to slow down and dwell in the heart of Christ? Why wouldn't we want to give ourselves over to this way of life? And Jesus talks about this resistance at the beginning. He talks about this generation that has seen both John the Baptist and Jesus standing there in the midst, the the two great teachers of God. But they could not be more different, the two of them. John, the bug-eating wilderness prophet. Jesus, who is known to love a good meal and all kinds of company. John, who wears scratchy shirts on purpose. And Jesus, who can occasionally be persuaded to invoke the power of Yahweh to keep the wine flowing at a wedding reception. John, who addresses his hearers as brood of vipers. And Jesus, who in Matthew opens his signature sermons with a congratulations to the people. 
they turn out to be so different that John's once booming voice in the wilderness is reduced to a tentative questioning from the darkness of his prison cell. Did John get it wrong? Did Jesus come to give a better way of life? John's disciples go and ask him, are you the one that was promised to us because you look so much different than what we are used to? I think the problem comes in this way, that our resistance in this way, this thing that Jesus has introduced us to, is that God's ways can be both a little too little for us and a little too much for us at times. That God's agenda is somehow simultaneously too conservative and too liberal. That he looks like a Republican some days and then he looks like a Democrat other days, if we want to put it in modern terms. And the funny thing is, is we can argue about which political party Jesus would be a part of when he was around. (laughs) But Jesus didn't have a political party. In fact, Jesus didn't ask you to pledge allegiance to a government. He asked you to pledge allegiance to him. And so the very fact that we're arguing over a political party in the name of Jesus is completely counter to what he would have us pledge allegiance to. We sort of chafe under John's unapologetic insistence that a moment of decision is at hand for each of us, that we must examine our hearts, let the chafe burn away and embrace God's future with our whole lives. It was fire and brimstone. It was, this is happening now, today, soon. Get yourself to the wilderness. Strip your clothes and wear burlap sacks. Eat locusts and honey with me. Come to the wilderness. It's better out here. But then Jesus can also rub us the wrong way because he sits and dines with tax collectors and prostitutes. And this was a holy moment, a religious ceremony that dinner was. And you're inviting people in who have no regard for real religion, who have no regard for real God and real Jesus. In his irrational exuberance, he just does not seem to grasp that some people are beyond, beyond hope that we must keep select company in order to keep our lives on an even keel. Both of these messages are a threat to our hard-won autonomy. See, we long to maintain this happy medium, this place where we can come in between John's stifling demands and Jesus' frightening inclusivity. So we keep changing our tune insisting on the moderation that we can secure for ourselves, not the extraordinary future that God dreams for us in the world, but something that we can do by ourselves, that we can build this world upon it. And that's where our resistance is most met, where we stand there in front of Jesus and say, this is a great way to do things, but it's not the best way to do things. That in our resistance to Christ, in our resistance to the way things are done that Jesus says, we're like, actually, I think you could do it a little bit better. I think that you are not doing this part as much as you should. And I think that you do this too much over here. 
And so then we start to say, you know what? I'm going to push back on this just a little bit because I think I have the whole thing figured out. Jesus is not addressing the failure of individuals to respond, but of society as a whole. We remember the vision of him standing over the city of Jerusalem in the Passion Week as he rides the donkey down the hill. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And he stands over Jerusalem. And what does he do? He cries. Because you don't know what you have here in front of you. Because you tried to do it yourself. God sent a prophet. God sent the things that we need to do. He sent his very own son. And you think that you have it a better way. An entire generation of people who have somehow failed to respond as they might to a song that is so utterly clear. We brought you music, we brought you a flute, we brought you a pipe, and you refused to dance. And in your times of mourning, you've refused to pray and to mourn, even when we sing the sad songs. We regularly dance when we ought to mourn for a world whose burden is heavy and for a people who need rest. We regularly dance when we ought to mourn. And we regularly mourn when we ought to dance. See, we get it backwards because we want to do it on our time. We want to do it on our agenda. We want to do it when we're feeling like it's convenient for us. But us as a whole, as a group, as a church, as a collective body of Christ, there is a burden on this world. There is a, a heaviness to their lives. That things don't feel complete, things don't feel as they should. And yet we continue to dance because we're saved. We're ready for heaven. We listen to the things that Jesus has told us are true. And yet, no. Jesus says there is a time, and you have missed the point completely. People are so resistant when confronted with righteousness and truth. And why is that? Why is it that we've become, as a society, as a people, choose one? Why have we become so resistant to the truth when we see it? Why are we so resistant to the rest that Christ has promised us? Why is it that when he says, everything is easier with me, we take that to mean, well, maybe if I take on some of that stuff, it'll be easier for me. I just need Jesus to make it easier in this part of my life as I've got all of this under control. And Jesus says, when I take on this part of your life that you don't have in control, I also want to take care of the part that you do have in control. Because what you think is in control is not in control. And if you continue to believe that you're in control of even these parts of your life that don't have these burdens, that are under pressure every day. Jesus is like, someday it will collapse. Someday it will fall apart. Someday all things end. Because you've put your faith in yourself. You've put your faith in society. You've put your faith in a world that is 
heavy laden with burdens alongside everyone else. Why would Jesus receive criticism and rejection for inviting people to receive his comfort and rest? I thought this is something we all wanted. I thought we all wanted to be comfortable. I, all, I thought we all wanted to rest. I thought we all wanted to be in a place that we can just slow down and breathe for a little bit and say, Jesus, just take all of this for me. And yet, as a generation, as a people, as a society, this is not an individual task. This is us as a people of God. As followers of Jesus, he's calling us. He's not, he's not calling one person to the side and say, hey, by the way, you need to learn how to rest a little bit more. He's speaking directly to his disciples, a group of people who can do this together. And he says, you know what? The things that I'm teaching you are so easy. The things that we can do together are so restful. And I want to take those things that you have and I want to release them. I want you to give them to me. And so what chance do we stand? Because they looked right at Jesus, the savior of the world, the man who could change water into wine, the man who continued to dine with tax collectors and prostitutes when they called him out on it and said, no, 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 you're not allowed to like other people. You're not allowed to be nice and kind and make them feel as though they're included in a world that you've created. <laughs> they looked right at him and they turned away. I don't want to be comfortable. I don't want rest from my world. I'm weary, yes, but I'll get myself out of it. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. Which, by the way, if you've ever tried, that's impossible to do. If you're wearing boots and you're pulling it up, that doesn't do anything. You're just pulling your boots on tighter. So I don't know what that phrase means. So we need to not be like the resistant generation. As a congregation, as a church, as a people of God, as the body together, when we are called into this, the one thing we are going to face the most, more than persecution, because we are in America, we don't face persecution in the church like the rest of the world does. So those things are not going to be on the front of our mind. But the one thing that we're going to come in contact more often than not is resistance. It's resistance because we're going to read this guy here who had this crazy idea. We're going to say, that's nice, but it doesn't work completely for me. We need to start accepting and aligning with the righteousness of God expressed in Jesus. And one of the ways that we can do that is through the revelation that God has revealed himself as Christ, as Jesus, as Jesus is standing there in this revelation that we look at Jesus and we see God. You know Jesus, so you know God. Jesus opens this prayer in verse 25, and he thanks God for revealing the truth to the little children. Little children don't have power. Little children don't have status in the city. They're not 
sitting high and mighty on the elders' boards. They're not sitting on the city councils. They're not governors, senators. They're not leaders of industry. Little children have no power. They have no status in society. And Jesus thanks God for revealing truth to them. Now, this is metaphorical little children. All the little children are people that don't have power, that feel oppressed in a society that's beat them down from the top to the bottom. And he says, thank you for showing the people that are helpless. Thank you for showing the people that need me most the truth about who I am. Because in God's grace, he reveals himself to everyone. And yet there are people who turn their eyes away. They reject that, that open invitation to Christ. And they see it and they say, no, no, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to wander away. I'm going to turn my back on what I think is important here. And Jesus didn't come to the people who had power. Jesus didn't come from the top down. He started at the bottom and he said, this is who I've come for. Thank you for revealing your truth to these people who are sitting here at the bottom. When Jesus turns away from the people gathered and lifts a prayer to God, we begin to realize just how clearly his focus is centered, not on the powerful, wise, and intelligent ones who so often attract our attention, but on these infants, these little children, on those who are far from the places of influence that we so yearn for. And Jesus says, you want to yearn for something? You want to long for something? Long for this. Long for the kingdom. Long to be a little children. Long to be an infant who needs to rely on God for everything. Because it seems in God's realm that the things that attract our very human attention are barely even noticed. The people at the margins, the people that have a hard time getting anywhere in life because of a struggle after a struggle after a struggle. And what we crave for is power. We crave more attention because we post everything on social media and we don't even think about what that might mean. We don't even think what that might draw attention to in our lives. And we miss the very thing that Jesus has told us to come and see. Come and dine with me because all of these people that are sitting around me, they get it. They see me because I see them. Do you see them? Because you've failed to see me, so I'm not sure if you see them. And worse yet, the blessings of God are intentionally hidden from those who, fill, who are filled with wisdom and the wiles of this world. Instead, it is the infants of this world, the innocent, the naive, who somehow understand the best ways of God. <laughs> and we know why that is. It's because they depend on him for everything. They are not self-sufficient. They can't just go off and say, that's it. I don't need my mom anymore. I can do all of these things on my own. And so as infants, we are completely and utterly dependent on our parents, on those raising us. And Jesus says, they get it. They understand because you are too far in your own self-dependency to even see what's going on here. 
These little children, these infants, they get it because they need me. They have nothing else. And so it is so significant that God has been revealed in Christ because as we live into it, we must remember that we are made in God's image. So Jesus's image is our image. If we see Jesus, if we are his followers, if we believe that he is the son of God and he has come to save the world and to usher in the kingdom of God, then he is our image. And that image that we bear is a revelation. It is a revealing of God to the world around us. It is us going out there, not to Africa, but to our neighbors, to our supermarkets, to our places of work, where we can say, this is God. I'm going to reveal him to you by who I am and what I do and what I say and how we can treat each other. Because the love of God compels me to do this. Not because I'm growing in satisfaction, not because I'm building my own empire or my big kingdom here. But Jesus has invited us into this and he says, I am God. This is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now we bear Christ's image. We are God's image bearers right from the moment of Genesis 1. Before the fall happens, Let's make man in our own image, he says. And so what does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to reveal God to the world around us? Hmm, we've sang it this morning. No longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Why are we so resistant as a generation? Because we die. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's taken directly from Paul. And he says, you know what? This is going to be difficult for us to understand. But if we are image bearers of Christ, if we are image bearers of God, you're gone. You're dead. The old has gone and the new has come. And we don't live in that way. We don't live in a way that reveals our new self to the world around us. It is God who weaves the very fabric of our existence through yet another paradox of unconditional love, demanding that we share the rich rewards of God's grace and mercy with others. But in doing so, we are called to live out of our possibilities and not our shortcomings by answering yes to God's what if. What if we loved everyone? What if you were more welcoming and opening? What if you revealed Christ in everything that you do? What if you took this message of hope and grace and love and rest and truth to those closest to you in your life? And as we do so, the love of God revealed in Jesus' witness moves us to grow in compassion and understanding and acceptance of each other. We are to approach God with a humble and teachable spirit. It's not so much that we resist taking the message to people around us. It's more like we resist 
going to God. It's more like we resist being open to teaching. It's more like we resist being humble, gentle, and lowly. If Jesus is in fact insisting that his blessing is known, not by the mighty and the powerful, but by the infants and the lowly, then this is a time for us too to identify with the infants and the lowly. Identify with those who live on the fringes of our society and in the fringes of our own lives, the people that we barely come into contact with. Jesus is saying both messages are important. The people here in your lives and the people on the outside looking in. And so finally, Jesus offers this promise of rest, this blessing of rest. A lot of times we read, take my yoke upon you as a command. You have to do this. You have to do this. But it's not a command. It's actually a blessing. My yoke is light. An interesting thing about Jesus is that through all of the Gospels, there are 89 chapters in all four Gospels combined. And there's only one verse in the entire Gospel section where Jesus talks about his heart. And it's in this verse here. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, to a modern reader, we're going to read heart and we're going to say, well, that's the emotional part of it. That's what we believe in our emotions. That's the center of our emotions. But when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or New, it's not speaking of our emotional life only, but actually the central animating center of everything that we do. Jesus isn't saying my emotional state is humble, gentle, lowly. He says, everything that I do, my entire animating center of my life, everything that motivates me, everything that pushes me forward, everything that I think about and talk about and the way I relate to other people in my life is centered around being gentle and lowly. And then we see Jesus as the same man in the temple flipping tables in anger. Gentle and lowly? How can we do these two things together? How can we see Jesus as both and? It's easy to understand when you, when you see Jesus as being motivated by a better way of life, by saying, what comes out of this? This is compassion for these people in the temple because they're ruining what people want to do. They want to come to the temple and worship, but you're charging them to do that. And this is an open and free invitation. And that is what has pushed him. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but it is all of what we do. The heart is not part. It is all of what we do. The discipleship to which Jesus calls us is not 
only offers us rest, but also guarantees persecution. And that's not something that a lot of people preach on a Sunday morning. That's not a lot of things that we go to our friends and we say, you know what, Jesus is saying, come to me and have rest. But also, you will be persecuted. Also, you will feel bad sometimes. Also, sometimes people will hate you because of who you are. Also, sometimes people will not want to talk to you because of the things that you believe. But also, it's going to be super easy to be a Christian, by the way. But we know that that's not true. We know that when Jesus has invited us us in to take rest, when Jesus has invited us us in to take his yoke, it wasn't for an easier life. It wasn't for a guarantee that all things will go smoothly. And if you've been brought up in a world of Christianity where you believe that, or you've been taught that through uh, something you've read, or a friend that you know who has told you that this is the way to an easier life, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Being a believer in Christ is not a shortcut to an easy life. It's actually a shortcut to a harder life. Because we're going to look at other people in the world and we're going to say, those are not believers and yet they still prosper. Why is it that so many good things are happening to bad people? Why is it so many billionaires don't go to church? Why is it that so many people with so much money don't believe in God? And yet here am I struggling in my life. Where are you, God? Your yoke is easy. You were supposed to take my burdens. So we must live with the conviction that we are all being called to live into a new vision of who we are to be and what we are to proclaim from what we have learned from Jesus' teaching. That verse 28 there, it's going to screw us up quite a bit because it tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden. That doesn't, that doesn't look like I expected it to. Because I thought that people that followed Jesus were supposed to have it all together. I thought that when I came to church, I was supposed to get my life right first. I thought that when I came to church, everyone would judge me and things would be so bad for me because I need to have a perfect life. I need to dress right so people will accept me. I need to say the right words. I need to be able to sing all of the worship songs because if I don't sing them, people will look at me and say, they're not a Christian because they don't know the words to our songs. And Jesus says that is flat out ridiculous because the people who are followers of Jesus, oh, it's not the perfect people. It's the people who labor. It's the people who are heavy laden. It's the people who have burdens and feel oppressed and are at the margins of society. That's interesting that he put that note in there. It's almost like we've been living in the wrong way with the wrong mindset, that we are more concerned about what the church thinks of us. We're more concerned about what other Christians think about us. And we're not so concerned that Jesus has already accepted us. He's already invited us to the table to say, excuse me, I know that you are hurt. I know that you're not perfect. I know that you feel like you're evil. But man, God loves you. 
and I want to have dinner with you. And you know what it looks like to love me? You know what it looks like to work in my kingdom? It's really light and easy, and it's considered rest. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. In fact, his rest is gift. It's not transaction. It's not, oh, I have to give up all of these things to come into your rest, Jesus. No, the invitation is there. The blessing is there. Jesus has spoken it into our lives as disciples and said, you can have rest. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively trying to find yourself weighed down by something outside your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, it outstrips even your own desires. Rest is not offered to the strong and the most powerful. Rest is offered to those who have been made weary by a world that fails to comprehend the burden of injustice, the balance of the scale of God's kingdom. The yoke is made easy by the heavenly powers coming to aid of those whose ways this world fails to understand. And so we are encouraged this morning by Jesus to bring our burdens to him, to take his yoke. You might be wondering what the word yoke means because we're not a farming society anymore. We drive cars on paved roads. We don't walk from town to town. You might not have ever seen a pair of oxen before, but that yoke is the thing that goes in between them and holds them together and then ties it to the plow behind it. A team of oxen would be under a yoke. And so as the oxen pull the cart, that yoke weighs heavy on their necks. And so Jesus does something very, very subtle here. Because he doesn't do exactly what we think we want him to do. Because in our illustration, if we're the oxen, if we're out plowing the fields and working, Jesus does not say, come to me because you will not have a yoke. You will not have something around your neck. You will not have to work anymore. Jesus says, the yoke that I'm putting on you in my kingdom, if you follow me, you will still wear a yoke. There will still be work to be done. But man, it's going to feel for, like freedom. It's going to feel so good. This familiar saying is widely understood to mean that following Jesus is easy because unlike the Pharisees, he's not too particular about how we live. That's called antinomianism if you're really into geeky things like me. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so now it doesn't matter how we live because God just forgives whatever we do. But as followers of Christ, we still have a job to do. How can Jesus offer rest when he asks so much? And this is where we're going to land today. This is our final question. How can Jesus offer rest when he asks so much? 
Because what Jesus offers is not freedom from work, but freedom from crushing work. You see how that works? It's not freedom from work, but freedom from work that doesn't matter. If you want to build something in the kingdom, come and work with the kingdom. Come and work in the name of Christ to build something that matters. Because the rest of the world toils under something that is worthless, that will die out, that does not matter anymore. And Jesus says, my burden is light on you because whatever you build is going to last. There's also the weariness that comes from having nothing at all to do that truly matters. Wasting our life away and throwing it away on things that no longer matter. The easy yoke means having something to do, a purpose that demands all and summons forth your best. It means work that is motivated by a passionate desire to see God's kingdom realized. It means work toward a certain future in which all of God's dreams finally come true. To accept the yoke of the gentle and lowly Lord is to embrace the worthy task that puts the soul at ease. That's the rest for our bodies. It doesn't mean that we stop working. It means that we finally have peace, that our work matters. It means something. It means something to the people on the margins. It means something to the people on the inside. It transforms our communities. And that puts us at rest. That puts us at peace. That puts us at ease. It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear him shout back, no, no, not me. This is hard enough to swim. I don't need something else weighing me down. This is the last thing that I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. And that's what we're all like confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. 